Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. I want you to show me the way to listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank Peter Frampton for writing that song about his favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. I'm John McAdam. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a raw bone podcast. Why am I talking so fast? This is the only wicked good podcast out there, and it is the People's Podcast. It is the major league of professional wrestling podcast. And with that, I want to bring on my guest. It's been too long since we've had him on. I know I have said that a lot lately, which is a good problem to have because I have a lot of really good guests that need to come on soon, our former guests, and I have like a great crop of potential new guests. So like I said, great problem to have. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, man. I am always appreciate coming on and I got a tough few to follow. John was great last week with the, the two uh, wrap-up deals and I, you know, he was awesome. Uh, Tamale's always great. So I'm just glad to be in the mix and appreciate it. Oh man. No one's more nervous than me because I mean, it's like, I'm asking myself, okay, did I peak at episode 136? I think it was, I mean, that's, that's, it's going to be a tough show to beat that. I mean, I, I learned so much from John. Yeah, it was amazing. And, uh, just having somebody that was, was there and just hearing all that was, was excellent. So definitely a great show. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought I was going to have a hard time beating a fairly recent show where Thomas Bain and I went over the Ole Anderson slash Dave Melter interview. I, I, I forgot Thomas too. He was, that was excellent as well. Yeah, that was And great. we might've even beaten that one. So perhaps there's hope for even for the show getting better each and every week. Absolutely. All right. I have been looking forward to this. The last time we did this, it was just Sean and I, and we went to wrestlingdata.com, which, you know what? Axel Salbach puts that out, and I want to thank him because it's an excellent site. I strongly recommend it. We are going to talk about results and shows from uh, 40 years ago today, and this show comes out on January 21st, 2021. We're going to be talking about shows that happened on January 16th, 1981. And if we have time, we'll go to January 16th, 1991. Being the gentleman that I am, I let Brandon pick the show that we would go over first. It is Georgia Championship Wrestling from the Municipal Auditorium in Columbus, Georgia on a Wednesday night. Brandon, first match, Charlie Cook defeated Bobby Eaton. Any thoughts on either of those stars? Well, Eaton was obviously on his way up, and I, you know, I don't remember Charlie Cook in Georgia at all, mostly just from Florida. I know he did a lot more than I'm aware of, but I honestly do not remember him ever being on the show unless I'm just forgetting. Eaton wasn't quite what he would become, but he was still really good at this point. He was definitely a high spot in, in Goulas around that time. One of the few <laughs> bright spots you know, <laughs> yeah. that, that he had left going. So I'm sure with, you know, it was probably a pretty, pretty decent match. I, you know, I was never a huge Charlie cook fan and, 
didn't see him a whole lot because I didn't get Florida. I saw him in the magazines and, you know, had heard that he had played pro football. I don't know if any of that was actually true or not, but. You know, he said he I'm, played uh, seven years as a linebacker for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I was, I'm sitting there looking, you know, listening to this going, okay, linebacker for the Steelers who are always on TV. And I've never heard of him. I don't think so. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I'm sure it was a perfect opener for a Wednesday night in Columbus. I would have loved to have made it down for one of those spot shows, especially the weekly towns there. It was like a religion for him, you know, I would have just been amazing to be able to go back and see some of that stuff. Had I been born five years later, I guarantee you, I would have spent at least a week in a car, like trying to hit every major circuit. Like, okay, this, this night we're going to see a mid Atlantic show this night. We're going to see a Georgia show this night, Florida over to mid South. The car would break down at some point, but I'd have a hell of a week. Yeah, I would have done the exact same thing just a, a few years too early. And when you're 11 and 12, you know, your your folks might humor you here and there, but not as much as you'd like them to, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> oh, totally. Uh, Bobby Eaton, from the minute I saw him on, on Georgia TV, he was a guy, he had funny trunks. That was the one thing I remembered about him. He was a little chubby, but my God, he took bump after bump. Even as a a non-smart fan, I saw how good he was. Charlie Cook, I think, is best known for getting buried in Ric Flair's autobiography like 20 years ago. He wasn't great, but he wasn't that bad. Had Rick not said anything, he would not have stood out as a particularly bad Florida champion. Florida would put their titles on guys that, you know, they were experimenting with, quite, quite frankly. And sometimes the experiments worked out like, you know, Manny Fernandez got his first big push as Florida champion and Charlie Cook, just not as much. Yeah, no, I agree. And, um, somebody evidently liked him, you know, personally, and I don't, I'm not sure who would have been booking right at that time. Would it have been maybe Dory in 81 there when he was kind of big in Georgia? I'm, I'm not sure, but, um. You know, maybe it was sort of like the Rufus R. Jones thing. He wasn't much in the ring, but they loved the guy, and he was a hell of a cook, so they liked to have him around. <laughs> there you go. That makes sense. I mean, I think Dory was booking Florida when he was the Florida heavyweight champion. I'm pretty sure of that. And I think booking here is someone who's coming on the show in a couple of matches. Uh, Robert Fuller, I think, was bo- booking Georgia at this point. Yeah, I think you're uh, absolutely right about that. All right, next match, Jerry Oates over Ron Cheatham. Any thoughts? You know, I barely remember Ron Cheatham. I think he pretty much always lost his matches. Yeah. On the show, Jerry Oates, the Oates brothers, I think didn't get as much credit as they should have. I think they were really good at times. They had some success in the Central States as well. I wish they would have got pushed a, a little bit more maybe, but yeah, I, I thought, I thought Jerry was a, was a good wrestler, especially for the time Matt base, not super flashy or anything like that, but for the time and, and what the sport was, I thought he was really good. Actually, Ted and Jerry Oates wrestled on the first Georgia match I ever saw October 3rd, 1981. We finally got WTBS on cable 
and I forget who they were wrestling, but they were the opening match, and they they announced the participants, and then they said, all right, the match is going to start after a commercial. I was like, no, now, no commercials. (laughs) I waited long enough for this. But uh, shout-out to my good friend Mark Oates, who is related to Jerry. I've known Mark for like 20 years online. Ron Cheatham is a guy who I know him as a jobber in Mid-South. I don't even remember him in Georgia. The thing I remember most about the Oates brothers, aside from you know being the first match I ever saw on TBS, in 84, when Ole was running that early Saturday morning show on WTBS, they ran an angle where I think it was Ted Oates who turned heel and was part of the Fabulous Blondes tag team with Rip Rogers, who's one of the most underrated guys ever. And yeah, Jerry was definitely the good guy. And it was like, there was friction between the Oates brothers, but it was never explained. And it quickly went away. Typical Georgia out at that time. Yeah. And that show was on so early and I was, you know, fairly young when that happened. And I, I still couldn't get up most of the time to, to watch it. So, I didn't see a whole heck of a lot of that, you know, for the nostalgia. Now I've gone back to watch a little bit of it, but at the time I didn't uh, see much of it at all. Cause it was where I was, I believe it was on at six thirty-five AM and yeah, you know, even at 14, that's kind of was in my want to sleep in yeah. <laughs> kind of phase. So, but yeah, I thought uh, the Oats brothers were, you know, pretty good and I, they could have held, various tag titles around i'm not sure how much they traveled i honestly only remember him from the georgia and then the central state stuff and by then they were doing i think it was after sam had gone and the whole st louis thing had fallen apart so i think they were getting some keel shots in there as well Hey, speaking of St. Louis falling apart, book recommendation for everyone, uh, Larry Matisic's book on the St. Louis promotion and its rise and fall. That was a really good book. Have you read that one? Yes, I have. I okay. think I probably got it right when it right when it came out and, and his Brody book as well. They were they were both pretty damn good and well worth reading about just to you know, read about Sam and how meticulous he was and you know, how he paid the bills forward all the time. And it had to kill him to see what it, what it kind of became once yeah. Connor and race and everybody got a hold of it. They just didn't do business right as far as Larry was concerned, but he'd watched Sam do it for, you know, a long time. And he thought he knew the way, it, you know, it should be done. And he, he just didn't like what it became. And we saw the result of it. So he, was more than likely right, you know? You know, I want to talk a little bit about something I read in Larry's book. It, 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 on the surface, people are going to be like, oh my God, that makes no sense, but I'll explain it. Larry made a point. He's like, what the hell does Harley Race know about booking? And you guys are, are, are like, whoa, wait a minute. What did you just say? But what he said makes sense. He's like, what does Harley Race know about promoting St. Louis? He flies in at, or arrives at four o'clock, comes to the arena and is gone the next morning. What does he know? And it was a ballsy thing to say, but it made sense. Yeah, no, I agree with that. He was there a lot, but he wasn't there every single day. And even with Central States, he wasn't there all the time because obviously when he was champ, he was on the road and 
even in the brief periods he wasn't, he was still traveling all the time. So I agree with that. Sam just, he did it so much like a sport and yeah. he, he was so respected by the newspapers and the sports guys there. And God, just what a run, you know, you start back in the the forties, you have to stop because the world war, and then you come back and you're battling with Thez and you know, you end up winning out and taking over and it's, it's hard to argue with 30, 40 years of success like that. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I mean, you know, and just keeping on that subject briefly, I mean, maybe uh, probably seven, eight years ago, I heard Jim Cornette on Roddy Piper's podcast, and you could tell Roddy barely had any idea who Jim Cornette was, and he definitely didn't know who the Midnight Express were. I mean, Jim Cornette's like, oh, yeah, you know, I managed the Midnight Express, and Piper's like, you know, faking his way through. He's all oh, oh, good boys, good boys. I'm like, oh, you don't know who the Mid- but why does Roddy Piper have to know who the Midnight Express are? Some guys just kept their eyes on their own paper, and Piper, you know, just you know, went from town to town, did his thing, and didn't worry about what was going on in the NWA. Well, and it's sort of like uh, you can relate it to to bands. They're not keeping up on the newest thing, especially the older guys. They're yeah. concerned with what they're doing. And so, yeah, that's totally understandable because hell, if you're wrestling all the time, the last thing you want to go do, unless you're going to maybe critique your own stuff or or watch some older stuff, you're not going to go check everything new out. So, yeah, you know, wrestling is your life. You're going from town to town. You're doing it day in, day out. You're doing a ton of TV. The last thing you want to do is, is go home and watch more wrestling. Of guys that you're not even familiar with. So, yeah, you know, I'm sure some of them heard here and there, hey, check these guys out or or whatever. But and back then, VCRs, what were you going to pack one on the road with you all the time? Yeah. You know, take to the hotel room with you. So it was just tougher for them, too. But it's sad because he missed out. They were a great team, but um, he's one of the greatest of all time as well. So. I'll give you an example. This is 1987. I'm in Philly. I'm with some of my friends. We're hanging out in a bar with Jim Cornette, Stan Lane, and Bobby Eaton, right? And they have AWA wrestling on in the bar. And Paulie Dangerously, Dennis Condry, and Randy Rose are on the screen. And Road Warrior Hawk yells from across the room, Hey, there's the real Midnight Express! (laughs) <laughs> and Stan Stan Lane doesn't know what the hell is going. Who are these guys? What? And why would Stan Lane watch AWA wrestling? Right, exactly. All right, enough of our sidebars. We'll be lucky if we get through this Columbus show. Third match, Steve O defeats the newly turned heel Kevin Sullivan. What do you got for us, Brandon? I think that would have been a pretty decent match. I wasn't a huge Steve O fan and being that age, I sort of wondered why he was getting the push he got. Being he this age, bad. I'm wondering why he got the push he got. But he, he was just kind of really vanilla. But Kevin Sullivan was really coming on at this time. Um, I, I'm guessing this is right when he sort of came back with the leaned out physique and just ripped and looked really incredible and he wasn't quite as vicious as he would become, but it was getting there. And I liked him uh, yeah, a lot more than just the, you know, the year previous when he was in doing the stuff with Tony Atlas and, and all that. 
So I'm sure it would have would have been a good match, and I would put most of that on Sullivan. I hate to just tear down Steve O, and I know his staff infection probably halted any real momentum he had going. I believe that's kind of what killed him and kept him out for a long time, at least in Georgia. But it probably could have been a fun match, and I'm sure the fans there were into it because. There was a lot of girls down in Georgia that I'm sure went to the shows and, and thought he was cute and probably were screaming for him. So, But I think it could have been a decent match, especially for a Columbus spot show like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, Steve-O, I don't know if you guys know this. If you get a staph infection, you lose all of your charisma. No, I, I, that, would, that, would, <laughs> that would imply that Steve-O had charisma before the staph infection. I don't mean to sit here and rag the guy, but he got a pretty big push in Georgia and I just don't see it. The guy was a walking void of charisma. And even, you know, as a kid, how old was I when this was going on? I was 15. And I'm just like, you know, why is this guy getting so much TV time? Kevin Sullivan, on the other hand, my pal Kevin Sullivan, who we do a baseball forecast on the six on one of the 605 specials with Brian last every year. He went from this sort of you know, a little bit chubby-ish Irish dude who, you know, looked like he spent a lot of time on, on the bench press when he was with the WWF in like 76, 77. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's in a way that's always how I'm going to remember him. But now I'm seeing him on cable and he is shredded. I mean, he looked great during this run. He looked like a, a star waiting to happen. I know his height kind of worked against him. But I mean, he was, he got so big and he did great interviews. This was prime Kevin Sullivan, in my opinion, not the devil worshiper, Kevin Sullivan that we would get in 1982, excuse me. But this is to me is the, is the best Kevin. Yeah, I agree. He did, you know, and he, he did had a great run in Memphis at the time as well. And I like this version way better than the, all the, you know, devil stuff in Florida, but, and to me, he overcame the height thing a little better than your. Mike Grahams and and a, and a few other guys. It just I don't know, and, and I think that came with putting on or you know I don't know if he put on that much weight or he just got leaner, but he was an actual competition shape, and I think he did some legit you know bodybuilding shows he did. at least around you know Tennessee and Kentucky or wherever, and but he looked great and his attitude changed and. You know, like I said, I somehow, some way, he overcame that height thing that so many other guys couldn't get past. Because at one time, even though it wasn't my favorite, he was sort of considered a monster heel there in in Florida. And most five seven, five eight guys, you don't consider a monster heel, but you know, he pulled it off, and they had a long run with it. And back to Steve O, I just. I can't believe he beat the Mongolian Stomper in the Omni of all things with a freaking airplane spin, yeah. you know, <laughs> and it was just, just so, yeah, and the, you were right about his charisma, but, I, you know, maybe it was a good thing he got the staph infection and, and he was out for a while and we were only subjected to the interviews then, but no ill will on the guy. No. And he came from an athletic family, but, um, I, you know, maybe Ole just liked him, or I guess it was Fuller at the time, but he got in somehow, and, and, you know, 
like I said, I can't believe he won the national title from the Stomper and in the Omni. That's just mind blowing to me. And subbing for Dusty, I think, who'd been cracked over the head by Morocco or Don Carson or somebody, and ends up, you know, taking the title. Then, so yeah, um, I was definitely taken aback. Kevin Sullivan had one of my favorite heel turns of all time. He's wrestling Steve Kern for the TV title on Georgia TV. And they're they're do, doing a move where like Kern, you know, it's a babyface match. So Kern backs up, and Sullivan suckers him, and he wins the match, wins the title. And Gordon Sullivan's like, "Hey, wow, what's going on?" And Kevin Sullivan comes to the podium, and he's like, "Hey, the last thing the referee tells you is to protect yourself at all times." And Steve Kern should have listened to the ref. I thought that was fantastic. That was fantastic, and it wasn't just a complete. You know, 180, I'm a devious evil heel now. It was cool. It was, and, you know, I sort of kind of like the Tommy Rich Bill Dundee thing in Memphis where he comes up and crotches him on the, uh, you know, leapfrog and feigns, you know, acting concerned for Dundee a little bit and then, yep. and then pins him and takes the belt. So, sort of the same kind of thing. And they were both effective, definitely. And, it was exciting to see him that way. I, Yeah, and then Tommy Rich goes over and terrorizes a helpless Jerry Lawler who has a broken leg. That was a great television segment. Match number four is a six-man tag team match where Ted DiBiase, Tony Atlas, and Robert Fuller defeat the fabulous Freebirds, Buddy Roberts, Michael Hayes, and Terry Gordy. There's a lot to talk about here, Brandon. There is, and... I loved this period and I loved the Freebirds. I did not love Robert Fuller. I don't know why. You know, he was big enough and everything, but he wasn't my favorite partner that DiBiase had. I liked him better than Plowboy. I will say that. And it's just kind of seeing odd seeing Tony Atlas in with him. I'd, um, I'm sure it was just thrown together for this show. But I'm sure it was a barn burner. Those guys faced each other all the time, so they knew each other really well. And I'm sure they had all their timing down. And the birds were just hated so bad down on there. And DiBiase was loved. And I guess, you know, Fuller was over enough. And obviously, Tony was over huge and just a stud. Not a great worker, but I, I liked him. So I'm sure that was probably a... a pretty damn fun match depending on how much Hayes was you know actually in in the ring as well um <laughs> and maybe there was a little bloodshed who knows because this was a, a really hot feud you know them the money and the the continental and all that stuff that's right fourth at the omni so you kind of got to shade it with that and and look at those bigger cards at the Omni and, and how close they were to this date. And um, so there was definitely a, a lot of hatred, a lot of hatred in there. And, you know, without looking it up, I don't know how far we were from them pile driving DiBiase and hurting him. But there was there was a lot of heat for this feud. So I'm sure it was a, a, a barn burner, especially in in Columbus. You know, and I don't know if was Fred Ward still around. I think so. During this period, because, you know, I would love. Didn't he have his own TV show or was it just the making 
that had the TV separate TV show. I know Columbus had a separate TV at one point. As a matter of fact, it was right. It was in 1981. They had it. So they, I, you know, a few of those matches have popped up, you know, there's an Austin Idol, Tommy Rich one, and then, uh, you know, Paul Orndorff and somebody against Koloff. And there's three or four out there that are, that are just awesome. And I wish a, a ton of those would turn up that to me, that would be Holy Grail type of stuff. Cause they, he sort of ran his own angles separate from what they were doing on the Georgia TV show itself. So, um, who knows if there was a step on this possibly that just isn't mentioned here, but damn, I'd love some of those to turn up to see some of those because what the little bit that's out there is, is really fun. And that sounds like they just announced live, you know, just at the car every week from the few matches that are out there. Have you seen those John? 2003. I am going through a pile of unmarked videotapes and I put one in and it's one of the Columbus shows that has, I I think it was one with, it was the mass superstar and super destroyer against Tommy rich. And I'm trying to think it wasn't Mr. Wrestling too. It was Tommy rich and one of the other big baby faces. And I was just like, where did this come from? What is this? And it was the Columbus stuff that I didn't even know existed. Yeah, I was the same way. I, I think somebody might have posted it on Wrestling Classics or or I might have done that after I saw it and asked people if they'd seen it because I hadn't seen it pop up. I just was YouTubing and it popped up as a suggestion and there ended up being, you know, those four or five matches. And then there's also a match out there with, I want to say Steve Regal and somebody from a studio show, but maybe that was the Macon show instead of the Columbus show. Cause I, you know, uh, I, any of that stuff showing up would, would be great, but I well, likely never will. Unfortunately. No, I doubt what I have was, it was just footage from the arena. It was on done by a professional camera crew, but there was no commentary. So I figured it was just, you know, footage filmed by the promotion. But then I hear that Columbus and Macon had their own television. So I don't know. <laughs> well, and the, what was funny, the, the Tommy Rich Austin Idol match for like the first five minutes, there is no commentary. And then some comes in and then the Koloff and uh, Orndorff and Mass Superstar uh, matches. There are commentary on those. So. I, you know, maybe it was just a thing that they did for a few weeks to try out and I don't know, but it'd be cool to see. Uh, if anyone knows, please post it on our Facebook group, which I forgot to plug. Um, but if you go to Facebook and put in stick to wrestling, our group will come up and you are absolutely welcome to join. Um, I, I mean, there's so much to say here. Three guys who, in my opinion, could have been NWA world heavyweight champions in this match. Ted DiBiase, Terry Gordy, and yes, Tony Atlas. Even if Tony wasn't a good worker, he had it. And I've always been a big fan of Tony's. One angle they did where I forget exactly how it went, but Michael Hayes won a match where if the stipulations were, were that if he won the match, he would win Robert Fuller's Lincoln Continental. And I've seen it on film, Michael Hayes just on camera dangling the keys in front of the camera, like just baiting Robert Fuller. It was one of the best angles I'd ever seen. Michael Hayes, 
I, I think for whatever reason, 40 years later, he gets a bad rap. He was at this time a really good interview, and I thought he was a good enough wrestler. Oh, yeah, I did too. Um, it's just, it's funny how quick he fell off when he did, but at this yes. point, he was just insanely good and, and so young, is what was crazy about it. Still uh-huh. really young. And, he looked cool, and it's it's funny to me. It's almost like how quick David Lee Roth went from cool to uncool, and yes. just really looking weird. And he sort of had that kind of same same thing, the hair, and and then once he was with Garvin, it was like, wow, it's just not the same. And maybe it was the little bit of extra weight. But, you know, a ton of guys didn't have super long hair back in 81, except guys like him and, you know, the Skinnerd guys and your almonds and those type of guys and some of the rockers. But most guys just didn't, you know, unlike today or the 80s and whatnot. So, yeah, I thought he was really special, him and him and Gordy. And it was nice having Roberts in there to kind of maybe take the pins here and there and sort of be a workhorse or whatever because he'd been around forever and i'm sure he got some really good paydays out of that you know run towards the end that he might not have gotten otherwise so i mean the joke going around 88 was that david lee yeah 1988 david lee roth didn't fall off a cliff he fell off a skyscraper and in 89 michael hayes fell off the skyscraper and i think the whole thing was it just felt like michael hayes at the age of 29 burned out of the business. He just lost interest. Yeah. Well, well, they'd had quite a schedule and he'd gone from, you know, what was he 17, 18 when they got in and Mm -hmm. you get that success so fast. And, you know, he probably lasted longer than he might've should have with the success they had and his partying and, and all their partying, you know, the birds were kind of known and, you know, if you piss off Andre the Giant for being a little drunk, then, you know, <laughs> you're probably overdoing it a little bit, you know, because <laughs> he could put it away himself. But, but yeah, he, he, he definitely fell off a cliff, but not in this period. I mean, they were just on fire right here. And he still looked cool and they had the Confederate stuff, but it was 81 and their outfits always looked cool. It's problematic now looking back on it but at the time we didn't think that way unfortunately and it didn't seem to be as you know as big of a a problem as it is today but they were just on fire here and and i agree with tony atlas too i i liked him i think he probably could have been the nwa champ as well he had a bunch of title shots versus harley at the omni and even a cage match and I think the fans would have accepted it for sure. No doubt. Yeah. I mean, and just to tell you, give you guys an idea of what a different world it was. I mean, this is 81 and I was a sophomore at Nashua high school and there weren't very many black kids. I would say probably like 10%. And one of them who I was friends with had a jacket with a Confederate flag, big Confederate flag on the back and underneath it said rock and roll N word except it didn't say N-word. And this is like what he chose to wear. It was just a different world. Yeah, now that's pretty shocking. Um, (laughs) In Nashua, New Hampshire. Yeah, that's crazy. And, you know, I grew up in a small town 
in Illinois, Southern Illinois. And I would say if there was 20 black kids in school, that, that might be pushing it. But my graduating class was literally 64 people. Oh my God. Yeah. And the school overall, I think had about 640 some, you know, it varied, but the town was only 9,800 people. So, and, uh, you know, things were definitely different, but we didn't think anything, you know, about them any different. Um, cause there was just so few of us. So they just kind of felt like part of the whole family, but there just wasn't many in town. And, there was a town just seven miles away that literally had zero black families. And, and that kind of shocked me and it's changed now, but it's just kind of amazing, you know, how things used to be. I'm, I'm just blown away by that, that jacket. That's, that's just craziness <laughs> to me. It was crazy 40 years ago, but you can only imagine now. I mean, I was, when I was a little kid, I lived in Queens and of course, you know, there's a lot of blacks, a lot of Hispanics. And then we moved to everybody. North. Yeah. I mean, it's Queens, you know, it's a big mixing plot. And then we moved to little, little old North Attleboro, Massachusetts. And there are zero black kids, zero Hispanic kids. It was, it was, you know, quite the culture shock to me. And yeah, we finally had a black kid move in when I was in the middle of seventh grade and I'm not sure what it was like when anywhere, 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 what it was like where anywhere else grew up, but I mean, we were very, you know, you didn't sit at our table, right? I mean, we were a very exclusive group and if you're not in, you don't get to hang with us. And me and my friend, we walk up to this black kid. I'm like, Hey, you know, are you going to play football next year? He's like, yeah, well, you might as well sit with us then. So it was exactly. a weird so sociological experiment, but anyway. Well, and it had to been tough for the kid too, being the only kid, you know. So yeah. you guys did the the right and decent thing. So that's good. <laughs> no, and yeah, that's the thing. I mean, we at least wanted him to feel welcome. His name was Matt. He was a cool guy. It all worked out. Anyway, fifth and final match: the Mongolian Stomper defeats Mister Wrestling Two. What do you think, Brandon? Well, that would have been a pretty damn good match. Uh, the Stomper scared the hell out of me the first time I saw him. Just a scary-looking guy and in incredible shape. And Don Carson wasn't the greatest manager, but he was pretty good with him, I thought, playing him up. And, you know, I forget what that thing was called, that he was always out there bending that, you know, oh, flex yeah. steel thing. and. He was just massive in those those boots and his kicks and everything. I, I thought he was great from reading in several different books. I guess maybe Gary Hart's book. He either, you know, had maybe not emotional problems or whatever, but either depression or something. And he'd, you know, stick around a place for just a little while and then and just ghost everybody. He wouldn't tell him he was going and and just be gone. So I'm surprised he got some of the opportunities that he got coming back places, but I guess he drew money enough that, uh, they overlooked it, you know, and, and then wrestling too was just a, a giant giant in Georgia. Just, I forget who asked the question. I think just yesterday on the group, whether him and rich were the number one and, 
that's that's kind of hard to say you know i'd say tommy i guess but two was there from 73 on and just massive star and boy what a what another 10 12 years of paychecks that gimmick put in his pocket he was you know going to be done as yes. johnny walker he looked old already and you know thank god woods left and jarrett had to you know try to do something and thank god he agreed to do it because that i'd say that set his retirement up at least fairly decently if he was frugal at all you know yeah just massive run there and then between there and the mid-south and i didn't get florida all the time but i know he made shots down there as well so he just got a, a brand new lease on life and it's funny uh i had never heard of johnny walker ever and one of the first things i did when i got the internet i might have mentioned this before was finding wrestling sites and who the heck was Mr. Wrestling 2. And when I found out it was Johnny Walker, I'm like, well, who, who the hell's that? I'd never heard of the guy. And obviously I realized that uh, I was wrong and he was somebody and had been around for a, a damn long time and was a big star in Florida and Tennessee and other places. So I'm sure, you know, as long as the crowd was decent and he wasn't uh, in a bad mood that night, that could have been a, a really nice main event for that show. Mongolian Stomper, I did not like him. And I'll tell you why. The, the gimmick worked. He was obviously in great shape. But I looked at him and I was like, all right, number one, he's old. And number two, like you wouldn't have a guy playing goalie for the Bruins called the Mongolian Stomper. You wouldn't have a guy on the mound for the Boston Red Sox called the Mongolian Stomper. Like I wanted the wrestlers to have names. I didn't want Abdul the Butcher, Mongolian Stomper, etc. Unless you were wearing a mask, that was different. I- I've grown to appreciate him over the years meeting Mongolian Stomper, but at the time I was like, I, I don't like this stuff. Don Carson, let's just say the stories are out there. <laughs> Mr. Wrestling 2, I absolutely love the guy. I thought he was a great babyface interview. He came across as a little bit cantankerous, which actually worked to his credit. And we talked about, you know, Tommy Rich versus Mr. Wrestling 2. Mr. Wrestling 2 was the top babyface in Georgia until Tommy Rich took that away from him. I want to say 1979 for sure. And when then when Tommy left for Memphis and came back, Tommy was clearly the number one at that point, which is right around the time we're speaking about. And they had a, an angle mapped out where Mr. Wrestling two was going to turn heel on Tommy rich, much in the same way that he eventually turned on uh, Magnum TA and they backed out of it. Now, you know what? I've always said, don't turn baby face legends and, Two wasn't a legend in Louisiana, so I was 100% fine with that. That was one of the, that was probably the greatest storyline in wrestling history, but I'm glad they didn't sh- turn him in Georgia. Actually, I agree with you there, because then what do you do? It's kind of like, you know, Vince Sr. not liking the babyface matchups, because then, you know, where, where can you really go with it? You One guy might lose a bit of his luster, and... Why take any box office off of them at all if you don't have to? But yeah, in Georgia, it wouldn't have worked um, at all. Maybe for a little bit, but I think it could have ended up hurting both of them. 
but I'm with you. The whole deal with the TA and, and mid South was just done to perfection. He was so cranky and cantankerous and, you know, you could tell he was older from his body, but he could still go. And he was just like the perfect asshole coach, you know, that everybody kind of had and run into. And yep. his interviews were just awesome. And that whole thing was just gold, you know, and they made a lot of money with it too. So, and it really set TA up. I wasn't a huge fan of his before that I had only kind of seen him in the magazines and then just watching that play out at the time, only through the magazines, I started liking out TA more. So it definitely did its, its job, you know? And Oh yeah, that definitely got TA over as a top baby face. Like he didn't have that, you know, he, he came across as kind of a, not a main eventer, like not quite a middle of the card guy better than that. But once like they, they did that feud with, with uh, Mr. Wrestling two, and he finally vanquished Mr. Wrestling two and the, the new Mr. Wrestling three or whatever he was. And he was now the North American champion. Like he was a star after that. Yeah. And you know, there's, there's the genius of Bill Watts, at least some of the time, cause he sure knew how to put things together and, put things with guys that at least he knew would would do what he wanted and and would pull off what he wanted and could add some of their own to it as well and boy they did it you know yeah i mean one of the i thought the greatest storyline in wrestling history and that is available on wwe network if you would like to watch that all right which show should we do next i'll tell you what this show, the last like three episodes have been very WWF centric. So I want to at least step away from that for one show. We will go with a championship wrestling from Florida, Miami show. January 21st, 1981. The opener is Hans Schroeder going over Bubba Douglas. Bubba, any thoughts on these guys? You know, Hans, I had only seen two or three times on MSG cards, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't get the Mid-South stuff until later, so I've only recently seen him a bunch from watching some of the Mid-South. He was a big guy. I know he had a pretty decent career, wasn't huge or anything. You know, nothing really special. He looked tough enough, but, um, you know, just kind of unassuming and no real thoughts on the guy. I, like I said, I guess he looked tough enough and all that, but nothing really stood out at least by that time, you know, maybe he was really something a a few years before. And then uh, Bubba Douglas, I didn't get to see a whole lot of him, but I know he was pretty beloved in Florida and was the mayor of uh, Lakeland Lakeland. There you go. So you know, he was so beloved, he could take the losses and, and the fans down there didn't care, you know, so. Yeah, uh, Hans Schroeder, I, he had a couple of WWF runs as an undercard guy. I do remember him in Florida because I got it on cable at this point. He came out with a riding crop, slamming it on the desk and demanding a match with Barry. He kept calling him Barry Wimpham. And it was in the worst fake German accent known to man. Even, you know, <laughs> as fif- at 15 years old, I could see right through this guy. But he wasn't bad. Bubba Douglas, I remember, lost a hair match 
to Sir Oliver Humperdinck right around this time. So it's the opening match. We don't have a lot. Match number two, the masked Superfly defeats Reggie Parks. Are you familiar with the Superfly? Now, yes, and I'm wondering exactly which one that would be. I'm thinking the large black fellow, but it was somebody famous at one time. Was it not Kareem Muhammad or... Because I believe he worked in Kansas City quite a bit as well. I think it was Ray um, Candy, which Ray is Kareem, okay. Kareem Muhammad. Yes. Ah. Okay, yeah. So I, I was sort of right there. But no, I never saw him work this gimmick. I've only seen ads for it, you know, from Kansas City and actually had zero clue he worked Florida under this gimmick at all. I think it was Ray Candy. It probably was because the guy was always large and, you know, I guess, I don't even know. I guess he would have been working as a heel here against Reggie Parks. And I, you know, about the only thing I really know about Reggie is he made belts and (laughs) he had a great physique as well. And he definitely seemed to know what he was doing in the ring, but he was a smidge before my time, I guess, is. He definitely looked older, you know, at least facially at the time, kind of like you mentioned with the stomper, which was absolutely true with, you know, even though having a, a good physique, you could just see in the face, he, he'd been, been around the block a few times. So, yeah, he was losing, Reggie Parks was losing matches on TV regularly at this point. And I remember like reading, seeing his name in magazines and, you know, he was a, a bigger star in the seventies, but now it, it, kind of felt like he lived in Florida and just went on the road, made a few bucks, knowing that, you know, his career essentially was over. Superfly, they did something in Florida where, and I I talked about this on the show maybe two years ago, so please uh, bear with me as I tell the story again. Mass Superfly was in Florida. He was a a large black man who wore a a big bodysuit that was like two different colors on each side. And he he was doing the loaded boot gimmick. And Sir Oliver Humperdinck was a babyface. He'd been a babyface for about eight or nine months. And Sir Oliver Humperdinck was at the desk, and Gordon Soley happened to mention uh, the boot. And Sir Oliver Humperdinck's like, oh, no, Gordon, he has a birth defect. One of his legs is, is shorter than the other one, so he has to wear that boot. <laughs> and, and I'm like, well, how does he know that? And I was like, what's going on here? Like, like I... A week or two weeks later, Solar Oliver Humperdinck was a bad guy again. But anyway, it was just brilliant storytelling, though. Like, they gave you that tiny little hint that something was amiss. And yeah, it, it was. Next well, match, yeah, but it could have been it could have been plausible, but not, not likely, but plausible. Yeah. <laughs> Next match, Scott McGee, who is just starting out here, defeats the Scorpion. Uh, just so everyone knows, the Scorpion was just a, a generic mass television jobber. Any thoughts on Scott McGee? Yeah, he was another one of those guys that if he would have been a little bit taller, probably would have done a lot more. Because he definitely had fire during his comebacks and fighting out from underneath the bigger guys. I've seen a couple of cool matches of his from Florida. I can't remember against who, but. He blades and um, just had a lot of fire. And unfortunately, he was just small. And his dad was so, you know, was his dad Tony Charles? Is, is that correct? Or am I thinking of somebody else? No, I, I don't think Tony Charles and Scott McGee are related, but I could be wrong. I know Scott McGee's dad was a wrestler. 
Okay, yeah, because he was a good mat technician as well. So once again, another of those guys that probably could have done a little bit more had he been a smidge bigger. You know, he was sort of like a a Rick McGraw to me. Um, yeah, about the same height, and they were thick as hell. But you know, without that few extra inches of height, you just wonder what some some of them could have done had they had that just little little bit more. What if Mike Graham would have been six two? You know? Yeah. And by the way, Lou to the rescue. That he Jeff Port, who was still wrestling in Florida, uh, pretty yes. much. In a, a Reggie Parks role uh, was his dad. Uh, Scott McGee's real name was Garfield Ports. Uh, yes. Scott McGee, like you said, he was a good wrestler. He was a little bit small, especially as the 80s went on. That became a, a bigger and bigger issue. He's probably best known either for his run in the WWF, which is like 85, 86, and he was just another guy. What can I say? But he was Florida champion in 1983. When he beat Ron Bass for the title in like four seconds or six seconds, something like that. And Ron Bass was the, uh, you know, the, the main heel, the, the, by far the number one heel in the, in the area. And, you know, for Scott to get that kind of a push, like I said, it was, it was like, we were talking about Charlie cook, you know, sometimes they would just put the Florida title on a random baby face. And sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. This is kind of one of the times where it was in the middle. Sure. Yeah. I I know he had his fans and, you know, and they got to try things out like that. And, you know, Jerry Jarrett did that for a lot of guys. He'd put yeah. a belt on him and it was like, Hey man, sink or swim. Here's your chance. And he definitely did that with Paul Orndorff and the Southern title. Cause Eddie Graham was like, I'm going to get rid of this guy, you know, and can you do anything with him? And he brought him up and pretty much immediately put the Southern belt on him. And it was like, all right, dude, do it or don't. <laughs> but here's your shot and he did it. So it really helped him. And maybe that was, you know, the thinking with some of that stuff like that. Hey, you know, here's your shot. Let's see what you can really do. You know, if we, if we really push you. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes, and sometimes the belt makes the wrestler. Sometimes the wrestler makes the belt. This is one of the times where the, 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 the belt made the wrestler. Jack sure. Briscoe defends the NWA Florida TV title by defeating Baron Von Raschka on a disqualification. What do you got for us, Brandon? Oh, well, God, I mean, what hasn't been said about Jack Briscoe? I always liked him. He was always fun in St. Louis, I thought. Great technician, obviously a legit <laughs> amateur that could really go. Sometimes he got a little bit thin, I thought, you know, when he got... That's a good point. Being literally thin, you know, lost just, you know, even a few pounds. He looked a little older, but, you know, just a legend. And it's, it's hard to really dog the guy. He pretty much did it all. He was sort of a homesteader by this part time in Florida. And the people had seen him, you know, forever by this point, but still plenty popular. And then. In 81, Von Raschke wasn't quite that bad yet, and he was another legit amateur guy. So, you know, they might have had a pretty entertaining match. It just depends on what the people wanted to see that night. Was it a brawl, or maybe they did a lot of mat-based stuff? 
But if, it, you know, I guess looking at it, if it was by DQ, I guess they could have had a mat based thing and then Baron starts, you know, hammering him or whatever. But I, it could have been a decent match, I think. I think it, it probably was a good match. Jack Briscoe, the first time I saw him, and this is 1980, probably fall, 19, fall or summer 1980, I had been res- watching wrestling for like four years, and this is the first time, when the first time I saw Jack Briscoe, I was like, oh my God, this guy is so good. It was the first time I'd ever said that about anybody. Like, he just stood out as just an amazing wrestler. Um, he was so smooth. Yes. Um, yeah, then that. Yeah, that's the word I can think of was just he was smooth. Yeah, he was. I mean, you know, and I know this was towards the end of his career. He'd be gone in four years. But I mean, I couldn't. It was the first time, like I said, that I was like, oh, you know, he someone stood out to me as an outstanding wrestler. And then right around this time, he wrestled Buzz Sawyer on TV. And it was one of the best matches I'd ever seen. I mean, it was, you know, a short match, obviously, like seven or eight minutes. But both of those guys were tremendous. Baron Von, this was the best Baron Von Raschka. He was managed by Lord Alfred Hayes, and he would come on TV wearing a suit, and he would just be so super serious. He wouldn't be clownish or anything, and he came across as this, you know, just really arrogant German guy, which he wasn't. But you know, you, you, I totally bought him. I, I absolutely loved him at this point. Yeah, this was definitely, he was better elsewhere, I thought, than any of his AWA stuff. That was yeah. always way too cartoony and, and clowny, but I liked him in Georgia in 1980 when he was Georgia champ, and then, you know, at least in the magazines here, he just seemed a little more vicious outside of the AWA. Now, granted, I didn't see his earlier 70s stuff. Maybe he was more like that back then. But um, I'd have to agree with you about this probably being one of the best versions of of Baron. I mean, Hayes was great as a smarmy little English dude. Yes, he was. I mean, we've talked about how great I thought think my Lord Alfred Hayes was in Florida on this show plenty of times. When Barry Von Raschke was in the WWF, he would get on TV and do an interview and he would put his left hand on his right wrist and make the claw thing with his hand. And he'd, you know, make funny faces and talk weird. And just and he was totally different here in Florida. I wish there was more footage of this because I, I thought the guy was great. I don't know I don't know why he didn't keep it up because when he was in Georgia the year before, he was still like the clownish Baron von Raschka. Yeah, and that's where I first saw him. I might have seen him on wrestling at the chase, but Sam had him toned down. Yes. They called him Von Raschke. Yes, they did. Baron Von Raschke. So if I saw him then, I don't remember. Um, and I know he had a few, you know, came in a few times, but he didn't stand out to me, at least when I was in that beginning stages of just, you know, starting to remember angles and that kind of thing. So. Yeah, I, I remember the first time I saw I saw those St. Louis tapes, and he was announced as just Von Raschke. I'm like, okay, this guy's going through the Sam Mushnick filter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mike Graham over R.T. Tyler. Any thoughts on either of these guys? Well, sort of talked about Graham earlier. Obviously, he could wrestle. And God, you know, he was strong as an ox, obviously, uh, for being his size. And I think he did fairly well 
for, I mean, what a huge shadow to be under. Yes. Um, especially in, in Florida. I mean, Eddie Graham was a legend, not only in wrestling, but just in everything around, you know, at the sheriff's boys ranch and civic things and just a, a pillar of a lot of communities there. And made a lot of money for a lot of fundraisers, I'm sure for a mm-hmm. ton of different schools. And just to kind of be under that shadow has got to be rough on a kid, especially if you're going to come up and, you know, be in the same profession. So, and then he was cursed, you know, I hate to say cursed, but with his height yeah. and that just held him back a lot. That's why I said just a, a bit ago, what if he was six one or even six foot instead of you know five seven or whatever? He could have really been something, I think, because technically he was definitely sound. And I, you know, I'm sure he at least just through osmosis would have had to glean some of Eddie's brilliance on finishes and things. So I know later on some of his shoots and stuff, he came across really poorly, I thought, and thought he knew way more than, you know, he did or was just flat out lying. But at the time, he was serviceable. And R.T. Tyler, I don't remember much about him. He sort of reminds me of a Buzz Tyler type of guy. I really only remember him from the magazines. So that's that's about my only thought on <laughs> on on all RT there. In 1981, I would absolutely would have accepted Mike Graham as the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion. That's how over he was with me. I thought he, you know, and again, I watched the the Florida TV, and I thought he was fantastic. Um, and again, a real genuine threat to Harley Race at this point. And I remember, like, I got the start getting the Observer at the end of 86 and I start reading about, you know, Mike Graham sucks. I'm like, get out of here. Mike Graham's great. And I, I still think that I still, I'm still a big fan of his. Well, I think there's he's nothing tr- wrong with that because you know, it's, I'd rather have my own perception of somebody because uh, say you had never seen Mike Graham before and you got the observers and you watched him and had a preconceived notion already and just kind of dismissed him. So your reaction to him, to me, was more pure than have read something and not like him already because you'd read that. So right. I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. <laughs> I, mean, I, you know, I didn't agree with everything that was in The Observer. I, I agreed with a lot of it. I remember. Oh, dude's you know, awesome. I mean, I love oh, yeah. him and I wish I would have found out about it way earlier. And I guess I was just so young because I I saw him in in some of the magazines, but I was just so young. I guess I was afraid to send off for things yet, you know, until I would have hit 15 or so. And I just never pulled the trigger until after 88, 89 or so. I wish I would have done it well before. Oh, same here. And honestly, I never even thought about getting a newsletter. I wanted a magazine. I, I want someone sending out i want i didn't want to read something that i could have just as easily put out or or, or at least i thought that you know but uh right i started I, like i said i started getting the observer uh it was december 1986 i got home 
late from a Christmas party. I told the story before, and he sent me some complimentary issues. Now it's up until literally daylight reading this stuff. And I got it at the right time because I think I was burning out of being like just an after mag fan. And, you know, the WWF was changing and there was so much, you know, wrestling was changing. And I think I got it at the, at the exact right time. Cause otherwise I, I wouldn't be surprised if I had not lasted as a fan after 1987 without that. Sure. I pulled back the curtain just enough for you to get a little bit reinterested in it and yeah. seeing some things maybe you didn't know. And I, I kind of agree. Cause you know, I watched through, you know, the time I was 16 and 18 and, and stuff, but you know, the guitar and girls were a little more important, but my eye was, you know, an ear was at least one of them was on what was happening. So, but then it was funny once 1990 hit, which wasn't the greatest year. And I turned 20, I just kind of went full back in because some of the magazines started coming out that did pull the cover back a little. And I'd learned about Meltzer and, and those guys. And I think that's what kind of rekindled my interest as well. And I've already mentioned, you know, getting the internet was hilarious besides looking for some tits. The first things <laughs> I wanted to look at was, you know, if there was any old wrestling stuff on there. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that was like that. No, definitely not. I mean, you know, unfortunately, people would come to me for information, which I was always happy to help out with. And then, you know. I would occasionally run into a guy who, you know, knew more than I did. Like I thought, okay, Meltzer knows everything. Then the next level down is me, Jeff Bowder, and a couple of other people. And then that's it. And when I got on the internet, I found out that was not the case. Plenty yeah, of there were so many guys that uh, loved it that you didn't, that you just didn't know. And I loved finding RSPW and, you know, I guess I always went to the news from Dayton and Mikasa and just all those different uh, sites back then. It was so much fun, especially when the WCW WWF thing really took off there in 96 or whenever, you know, the whole Nitro came around. That was just a really fun period, at least for me, you know, oh, totally. and, and reading stuff. Literally, news might come out three or four times a day and I was checking it, you know, and it's like, dude, you're 26, man. <laughs> and you're checking this stuff three and four times a day, but it was, it was a lot of fun, you know? So well, it's, it's funny. You mentioned that, you know, you were trying to fit it all in, you know, girls, the guitar wrestling, like, I mean, I, I fit it all in. I mean, my girlfriends knew like, we're not leaving until eight Oh five. That's it on Absolutely. Saturday night. And no matter what her, various girlfriend circumstances were i was in my friend joe's basement at midnight every single time because that's when wwf wrestling was on like it doesn't matter what was going on yeah it's great that your parents were out of town honey but i gotta go i gotta go we could do that <laughs> another time there's always another time <laughs> all right two ring 18 man battle royal won by dick slater my own opinion is that the touring battle royals, ab I mean, battle royals suck anyway, but the touring yes. battle royals were the worst because basically there was too much space. No matter what, you couldn't see anything. Yes, and I always hated the touring thing. I, some, a couple of the war games were really cool, so I guess I need to put that caveat in there, but it just, 
you were it sort of ripped you off for the week if you had front row tickets because there was two rings and i don't know if they did it in florida like they did it later on if they'd have you know one match and one ring then go to the other ring so the other side you know switched back and forth between rings just during the regular matches but yeah I just didn't like the look of it. It was almost to me like I I don't like concerts in the round. I don't know why. I want them to be at the end of the damn, you know, arena with their stuff. I, don't, I just don't like it. And I think the two rings always made me think of a concert in the round. It sort of ripped off one side of the crowd that had paid for ringside because now you're 30 feet farther away than you were, you know, before. And, but they didn't do them that often. And I'm sure there was some people that dug the gimmick, but I'm like you, they always just kind of sucked. And I know I've heard a lot of guys say they hated them because you're always waiting for somebody to step on your ankle while you're not looking or, you know, just too easy to get hurt with, with, you know, inadvertently. Yeah, exactly. Now, Dick Slater wins this. He was in the middle of getting a big push. I, as everyone who listens to this podcast knows, is a huge fan of late 70s, early to mid 80s Dick Slater. I think he could have carried the NWA title. As a matter of fact, I know at one point he was under consideration to carry the NWA title. He was the champion and lead heel everywhere he went. A tremendously underrated wrestler, in my opinion. Oh, I thought he was awesome. Yeah, and he was Missouri champ, and he definitely could have. And I would have loved to see him in, in Georgia, his feud with wrestling two in 76 and 77, and him and Orton Jr. as, as tag champs there. Yeah, he did it all, and he was great. He did sort of, you know, become a bit of a terry funk clone a little later maybe but yeah that didn't bug me that much there were guys that were similar but he was just double tough and and a character and i was i was always happy to see you know if he hadn't been on georgia tv for a while and they were announcing one of the cards and mr unpredictable dick slater gordon would say and (laughs) it always fired me up so i i loved the guy there's a story out there, and I believe the story, okay? I, I mean, I've I, I heard it from enough guys who were around the territory. John Matuzak was playing football at USF, and he was working the door at a strip joint. And Dick Slater's in high school, and he wants to go in the strip joint, and he beat the crap out of Matuzak. I'd heard that, too. and As know, a high school I, kid. I, you know, he was just, there's just kids like that, like Terry Gordy. I mean, hell, that well, that match from the IWA where he's 15, it's like, he doesn't look 15 there. I mean, that's a grown-ass <laughs> man already. Maybe Wait, he's lad. not, but just crazy. So, yeah, I believe that. I mean, it, it just out there too too much, you know, for it to, there's got to be some truth to it. Uh, I think I'm going to name this show Cruising with the Twos anyway. Our final match, and I can't believe it. We've already gone the the 60 minutes. This is the the fastest hour for me every single week. Dusty Rhodes and Sweet Brown Sugar, uh, a.k.a. Skip Young under a mask, defeated Ole Anderson and Assassin Number 1 in the main event. Share your thoughts with us, Brandon. I think this could have been really, really good. I wasn't a huge Sweet Brown Sugar fan. He could move. I liked him better with the mask than off. 
Definitely. Um, he was a stud, but something about his face was too nice to me. I don't know. He just looked great with that black and white mask. I thought that with um, that one looked the best to me personally. And Dusty, obviously a legend, especially at this point. And they're facing two of his all-time nemesis, especially from this period. Yeah. Ole and the Assassin. So I'd say it was a pretty hot match, especially being Miami. They always had great crowds and. I don't think Dusty ever minded blading any time, no matter where they were. So it was probably a pretty, pretty damn good match. And I would have loved to have seen it, actually. I was watching some Florida wrestling from 1987 earlier this week, and it was right around the time the Crockett guy started coming in. And Dusty did an interview. His forehead had to be seen to be believed. I mean, it was such a friggin' mess. It was just, ugh, I mean, <laughs> I don't know how he did it. I mean, that had to have been sore all the time. And I know it was a badge of courage for some of them, but who just got crazy. Uh, some of them, and, you know, Albano's head would look like that at times as well. And, and King Curtis, um, and then, you know, who, who's the guy and, uh, the, lucha libre uh one of the viano guys oh yeah his chin was all gigged up or uh mad dog uh oh hell i can't remember his name but just i mean just abdullah type you know gashes in in the head so some of these guys were definitely blade freaks you know yeah uh i mean dusty well first of all i agree with you that sweet brown sugar was way better with the mask right around this time. Uh, by the way, it was Lou to the rescue again. Pero Aguayo Sr. Yes, that's is the I guy you were referring to. Name. It's just insane. Look up some pictures of him. It's just incredible. <laughs> anyway, yeah, sweet brown sugar right around this time. He had a match, and I don't remember who it was against, but he announced that, you know, win, lose, or draw, I am unmasking after this match which probably drew a great crowd. Uh, but and even the first time I saw him in the magazines in 79, I'm like, okay, that's Skip Young. <laughs> what, are we, what are we doing here? That's the most obvious thing in the world. Another guy, they experimented putting the Florida title on at least once, I think maybe twice. Mm-hmm. Dusty Rhodes, what can you say? He is, he's a, probably a little bit past his prime in Florida, but, but his prime was incredible in Florida. I do remember Ole Anderson, making the trip up from Georgia, uh, doing an interview saying he was specifically coming to Florida to go after Dusty Rhodes. So this is obviously right around that time. And, you know, the assassin, one of the best interviews in the game, he was just a vicious, vicious, dirty heel. He was one of the best ever. I mean, he just stood out as, you know, a legend to me at this point. Yeah. I loved him too. And and watching him on Georgia, just sealed all that stuff is, feud with with dusty and the stuff with two and wrestling one with you know the episode where they both pulled each other's mask off and yeah the episode with just the you know in-depth interview and which was i think the same same show yeah just a great talker and people don't realize how young jody was and i thought when he's 17 and headline madison square garden with his brother i believe so so he'd, he'd been around. And no, he'd been around since the 60s. 
And, you know, the mauler, I didn't see much of him until later. He was always fun, but I, I definitely liked the assassin the better and the team of the assassins. And Jody was just awesome. Just incredible. Yeah. I mean, he was, the, he was the heel that I hated the most because, you know, he was, he was just su- such a rotten, dirty guy. I remember he suckered. We talked about this maybe two years ago. He suckered Dusty Rhodes on TV. And Dusty's laying on the floor and he's yelling, get that garbage out of here. Someone pick up that garbage and get it out of here. I'm, oh, my God. What a nasty thing to say to someone. Well, yeah. And, and I, the best part, he was so matter of fact, kind of yep. like Buddy Colt. He didn't have to yell and scream. And you believed him, man. You believed every word he said. He was just menacing as hell, yes. I guess, is the, the best word for him. That is the best word. Brandon, this show has gone by so fast. I'm sitting here talking about we've got like eight shows in front of us. And I'm so smart. I'm like, okay, if we get through all of these, we'll head over to 1991. We got through two of the shows. (laughs) Well, that's fun. It went fast for me too. And I definitely always enjoy coming on and, and, and talking with you about stuff because they, and sorry, I go off on tangents. No, that's what you're here for. It's, it's hard not to, at times, you know, it just sparks little things that you think of. So always fun, man. You had a graduating class of how many people? 64. I had like 964. It was like <laughs> 900 something. And well, I always wondered what it was like. Like I went to a, a huge high school, obviously, and a small college. And I've always wondered, like, can I please be reincarnated and find out what it's like going to a small high school and then a big college. Well, it was crazy. And this is funny. Nancy Grace has a new show on. I don't like her, but I sort of like murder mysteries. I'll, I'll make this real quick. We sure. had a kid we went to school with. He ended up shooting a guy when we were 15, sophomore year. Killed the guy. He went to prison till he was 21. He got out. And in 2012 or 2013, we find out he's been a serial killer and he's killed like six people that we know of. The show's called Nancy Grace Injustice with Nancy Grace. But there's a whole show on this kid that was in my class that I went to high school with that sat in the library, you know, with and chopped this dude up with a hatchet while he's driving (laughs) down the highway. It's just insane. So, you know. But my point was, you know, I was talking to my daughter about it and I'm like, and sweetie, you got to understand we had 64 people. We all knew each other really well. This wasn't just some guy that I might've passed in the hallway. Once we interacted with this guy every single day and his name was John Bridges. It was just crazy to hear about that, you know? Wow. So you get 64 people in your class and you get this one special guy. I've got like 950 people. And one of the girls is on the pro bowling tour. That's the best. I've got. All right. I'd listen, rather have friend, the bowling tour. What's that? I said, I'd rather have the bowling tour girl. <laughs> Brendan, thank you again. I want to thank lightning Lou Kippelman, our awesome producer for all the work he does. Uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. We will see you next week. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.